This program is funded through a more perfect union initiative of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Welcome to part two of an Afro-Indigenous history of the United States with Kyle T. Mays. Now, I want to uh, spend a little bit of time because I get this question all the time around cultural appropriation versus appreciation. And I'll start with appreciation. So you're respectfully engaging with the culture and the people. Right. That is, you know, say you're a hip hop head, you hang out not only with the music, but you, you know, you hang out with black people and you care about black people. You understand the context and history of that particular culture in, in the most respectful manner. You see that group as being dynamic. That is, you don't see them only through the lens of, say, for example, hip hop culture. You continue learning from them, too. Right, that's important. Uh, cultural appropriation is much more, much more utilized today, I think. And I think there are some very good takes and some very terrible takes when it comes to cultural appropriation. But it's simply that a dominant group taking the culture of a people and using it out of context, uh, and most importantly, profiting off of it. Uh, you're not understanding uh, history and the context in which that culture is produced. And they just sort of see people as very static. Like, this is what they're known for. And this is what they do. And this is how they do it. For example, you might see people appropriating uh, queer language, like queer language in particular. You might see people appropriating uh, hip hop culture. And they, they are doing this and then profiting off of it. Or very recently, you had a lot of uh, white creatives taking the dances that black uh, dancers and creatives had made on TikTok and then profiting off of it. These are examples of cultural appropriation because it's really about power and your ability to profit off of such things. Uh, this is another one. So again, I mentioned at the beginning that we can often assume that black and native peoples to be in solidarity and, and don't commit such things. But this is from 2017. This is a post from Minaj, right? And, and this has, um, it, was, it was for Paper Magazine, and this has all the things around uh, anti-Black women playing Indian and a host of things around race, gender, uh, appropriation and so forth. So this is, uh, she had the caption of Pocahontas, but uh, it's supposed to be Pocahontas, and she took the Pocahontas part down. And it was offensive to many Native people, especially Native women, when Native women experience uh, sexual assault at two and a half times, uh, uh, two out of five times more likely than other groups. And it, it's, it's just inappropriate in a lot of ways. But what was missing, though, is no one really asked who the artist was. And it was an Argentinian artist, right? So while she put the caption on and perhaps approved the image, it was a particular artist who made it. And this artist makes racy, risque uh, Disney art like this in a variety of contexts. But uh, there was a lot of anti-Black woman in the rhetoric in response to Nicki Minaj as well. Now, she's a celebrity, and I'm not too much into defending celebrities uh, for the most part, but 
like the the dynamics it's like when you know someone from a oppressed group uh commits an act like this people seem to be more offended and have much more vitriol and part of it because you don't expect that to happen but we should expect anyone to not that we should expect but we shouldn't be surprised if anyone engages in various forms of appropriation, uh, prejudice, and so forth, because um, as Ibram Kenny has noted, that many of us can adopt a racist idea, and I would add that many of us can adopt a settler colonial idea as well. Uh, and this is uh, another example here. So uh, this is Reservation Dogs, uh, the show on Hulu, which is now in its second season. And in the first season, there's a lot of commentary, and I was getting it from friends, colleagues, and so forth, about the lack of Afro-Indigenous representation, given that it's in um, Oklahoma. And there was not a lot of references to the music used and so forth. Uh, in particular, this particular video, I encourage you to go check it out on your own called Greasy Fried Bread. It's it's pretty funny, but people were like, oh, this person, they appropriating black, um, black Southern culture with the grill um, and so forth. And I would encourage you to go check it out uh, just to see. And to me, that wasn't even really appropriation in, in one sense. But there was a particular scene at the end of uh, on episode one where this person, um, and I would, yeah, I would just, I would encourage uh, you to check out episode one uh, in particular, just because it's not really the music that's appropriation or might be deemed anti-black. It's how the writers wrote something um, that I thought was a scary black man. And it's difficult to explain about the actual video, but do go check out um, episode one and the rest of the series, which is fantastic, by the way. So um, I want to spend some time here uh, wrapping up and thinking about what are some of these aftermaths. And I think kinship uh, is important. So when I say kinship, so I am Saginaw Chippewa and we have a clan system and I am a part of the uh, Makwadodem or Bear Clan. And every clan has a particular responsibility within the nation. There's even a clan for outsiders, right? And what, a, what kinship does is clearly define the role of people within that particular uh, society. Now, if we're moving towards the aftermath of settler colonialism and white supremacy, and we have to think very clearly about what our different roles are to each other, to the land, and to our futures. So I think an important discussion right now is the reparations debate. So I'm in California. Uh, the state legislator has been toying with various uh, issues around reparations. So what was known as Manhattan's Beach, uh, was formerly known as Bruce's Beach, is one example. And it was just awarded back to the Bruce family. It was taken from a black family in 1926, 1925 or 1926. 
and it was just given back to them. Uh, they had lost all sorts of wealth and land. Now, what's important about this is, and I'm not opposed to reparations per se, but many of the articles uh, in Los Angeles Times and local news have mentioned very briefly, but not discussed in full, that where did the Bruce's get this land? Now, they weren't the ones who actually took it away from indigenous people. They sort of just occupied it later on. But in, the, in, relation, in discussion of reparations, there should be a simultaneous discussion of if you're going to compensate these peoples and perhaps return that piece of land, what about returning land to indigenous peoples, right? And so uh, William Darity and Kirsten Mullen in their book, From Here to Equality on Reparations, based on their calculations, say that it would require a, a expenditure as large as 15 to $20 trillion. Now, it's laughable, right? What's laughable is not the actual number, per se. Like, he actually calculated a host of um, things, whether that's slavery, Jim Crow, and so forth. It probably makes sense. What's, now, what's the funny part is the United States is not paying African Americans 15 to $20 trillion uh, for, for reparation. I just don't see any way that it's possible. And the second part of this, though, is where do indigenous peoples fit into contemporary discussions of reparations? So if the foundations of the United States are rooted in anti-blackness, rooted in slavery and the dispossession of indigenous peoples, and whether that's uh, the Declaration of Independence, whether that's the Constitution, whether that's Alexei de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, the Federalist Papers, if you read all of those, you'll see various forms of anti-Blackness and anti-Indigenous sentiment within those documents that are so uh, sacrilegious to and, and paramount to our understanding of U.S. democracy. And land was central to them, so how can we have a discussion of reparations without also a discussion of returning of land? And so the Indian Collective, a collective of indigenous peoples committed to the land back movement, argued that it's a political framework that allowed us to deepen our relationships across the field of organizing movements, working towards true collective liberation. And I think the most important part here is that it allows us to envision a world where black, indigenous, and POC liberation coexist. Um, and the number here is since 1776, 1.5 billion acres have been acquired, seized, stolen, coerced, whatever, from native peoples. And finally, they argue that white supremacy, to be truly dismantled, we have to put indigenous land back in the hands of indigenous peoples. So my, um, I'm wrapping up here, my colleague uh, and good friend Amber Starks goes by the social media name Melanie Muskogee, argues that I fundamentally believe our arrival at black liberation in addition to sovereignty will certainly require us to remember who we are outside our oppressive institutions, ideologies, and imaginations. Right, and I, th I think that's a that is deeply profound, and it takes a lot of work to do that. And I think activism, I think popular culture representation, 
I think all those things uh, combined are important to really try to see ourselves as very different. And not only see ourselves different, but relate to each other differently as well. Uh, and so what can this look like? And I want to begin with the quote from queer black feminist Audre Lorde in her essay, Learning from the 60s. She says, any future vision which can encompass all of us by definition must be complex, expanding, and not easy to achieve. I think many times we can assume that um, these things can just be very easy, that justice can be easy. And I assure you it is not easy at all. Um, and if we're, if we're really to have a robust conversation about how oppressed peoples across the board uh, can get liberation and freedom, or when someone asks Nina Simone, what does uh, freedom mean to her? This is the great sanctuary. She said, no fear. Now imagine if uh, every oppressed person could generally live with no fear, whether that's black, indigenous, queer, all those things and so forth, right? You, you don't, you can be vulnerable without having to fear consequences, right? Now imagine that, women's reproductive rights and so forth. But all those things require a deep understanding and kinship and relationships with one another. Now, one thing I would love to, to see in a variety of communities is multi-generations sitting down uh, with one another over a meal and just hanging out and learning about each other's histories and discussing and strategizing about our futures. Right, I think uh, I have this a wild idea about indigenous nations adopting people of African descent as one example. Uh, whatever their protocols are for doing that. Uh, and I think there are many creative ways that we should all get together and think about how to accomplish some of this. Um, and I'll end right there. So, Chimi Gwich, and thank you very much for listening. Um, and I'm looking forward to uh, questions and conversations. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much for sharing all of that knowledge. Um, and also some of those examples with popular culture, because I do think though, you know, being able to point to something, especially a more recent event, you know, like that Nicki Minaj um, example is one of those things where it truly makes it a lot more visible and a lot more um, understandable and easier to engage with rather than just, you know, saying, you know, oh, in the history books, you know, this is how it was. One question I did have for you is how do you reckon with the notion of erasure, especially with history? because history is such a multifaceted, multi-lensed, you know, body of, you know, knowledge, so to speak. And I know in your book, you did mention how there is that notion of, when you talk about indigenous um, American history, African-American history gets erased or vice versa. Like there is that notion that you can't have both at the same time. Yeah, er erasure is, is, is tough, um, especially in a country that, is dedicated to uh, pe keeping people uneducated and people sort of accepting that, right? So for example, one assignment I give to my students uh, often is I say, all right, go home, you know, whatever you consider home, whatever place, and think about who are the local indigenous peoples of, of where you live. I always get some strange looks from people uh, if, if they know very little about indigenous history. And it's not to shame them at all. 
it's just say, and, and many, you know, usually 30, 20 to 30% will say, I didn't really find anything. And th my response to them is, this is how settler colonialism works. It's meant to make sure you know very little or to grow up not knowing very much about the local indigenous population. Right now, and I was like, take that as a lesson to go back and think through how that happened uh, systematically. And um, often that's how erasure works because it's one thing to learn from a textbook. Uh, and I know teachers are strapped, so I'm not putting this particular burden on them. But it's another thing to, you know, take people out if if you have local elders from in from that particular community, take them to the land and, and learn uh, about that particular history. It, it does wonders uh, for people. And what, kind of continuing off of that, you know, in the notion that the loss of knowledge you know in that notion of oh i didn't find much in your opinion as we are in moving towards the future you know increasing technology increased access to knowledge but at the same time we're moving further away from you know the settling of jamestown and all of these things that happen on the eastern coast of the u.s where there tends to be a lot less visibility in some areas um, with indigenous tribes you know, due to various mechanisms. Do you think moving forward that some of that might be lost or that it might be more accessible and actually more easy to engage with? I mean, it's difficult. So uh, some positive examples that I know of, uh, my colleague Elizabeth Rule at American University has helped uh, various folks and um, another colleague, Ashley Minner, um, in Baltimore, a Lumbee woman. Uh, they, so Elizabeth has created a, um, an app to help like people when they're walking around in Washington, D.C. She worked with Dr. Um, uh, Ashley Minner to create an app as well uh, for, for East Baltimore in particular. So people can kind of learn about those local indigenous histories. And I think technology is a powerful tool in that sense. On the other hand, and that's very interactive, pretty cool. On the other hand, though, I, I often see more and more students not uh, wanting to read. And this sounds strange, but um, there are a lot of things that distract us, you know, whether you're on Instagram, Twitter, just hanging out and taking the time to sit down to read you know, for an hour, two hours, seems to be a, a quickly depleting art form, right? Unless you're just an avid reader uh, because you like to read, but, and it, it's hard to, to really get them to read. So, and there are always exceptions, of course, but just in general and anecdotally, they're like, this is too much reading. And I'm like, when I was in school, what do you mean I was too much reading? <laughs> but you know, there wasn't, there wasn't all of the uh, challenge, at least as an undergrad, it wasn't all of the challenges of Instagram, uh, Twitter, mm -hmm. uh, those are just starting out. So it's a challenge. And in your work, um, have you experienced any instances where, you know, labels can either be a positive um, aspect of movements like the Black Power and the Red Power movement, or have they been used 
in a way that essentially not rewinding the clock but it you know stumps the momentum of these movements or creates you know internal clashes within these groups you know especially thinking of telling you know an afro-indigenous history or even just an african history of the u.s or an indigenous history of the u.s yeah i mean i there are certainly instances of uh often people don't want to see these things as as a form of solidarity uh some native people don't want to be lumped in with african americans both historically and today uh because they're like we're not a minority we're we're nations with, with treaties and we're sovereign uh but what do you tell that to afro-indigenous people like myself or my cousins, right? It's it's a bit more complicated mm -hmm. than that, and yeah. And the other part of that is um, some African Americans can easily just just erase Native nations. So uh, paraphrasing the Combahee River collective statement from 1977, when they say when all Black women are free, everyone will be free, or when all essentially when all Black people are free, everyone else will be free. And I used to just accept that the way that it is. And and like 95% of that is true. But another question to add to that is where do Native people fit in that formulation? Mm -hmm. Because if all Black women, all queer Black folks and so forth, all trans Black folks are free tomorrow, what does that say about returning land to Indigenous nations? And uh, certainly there are many or at least a handful of folks who who would think differently about that. But that still doesn't account for indigenous women, indigenous trans folks, indigenous queer folks, which for them is still fundamentally about returning land. Right? Land is, is sort of the key thing here. So we have to think, um, that's why I see these things as very connected and they should be looked at simultaneously. And the last question I have for you today is, you know, this program is funded under the A More Perfect Union Initiative from the National Endowment for the Humanities with the focus of, you know, exploring the history of America as we approach the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence being signed. You know, in what ways can we as a country help move the needle towards a more perfect union instead of letting it go backwards? So how do you see the exploring or the revisiting, or as this book is part of the revisioning history series, re-envisioning history, moving that needle towards creating a more perfect union as, you know, one country and one society, even though obviously there are multiple groups and multiple different identities under that umbrella. Yeah, I, it's, it's difficult uh, because I think Black and Native people and peoples who are committed to justice have, have been trying to do this for for centuries now. I know the U.S. is still a young, young nation, but I've been trying to do this for a couple of centuries, at least. And whenever those groups most committed to justice actually try to radically transform society, and in many ways simply make it better, they get imprisoned, they get exiled, they get murdered, and so forth. And so what I would hope is that um, people would sit down across races, gender, sexualities, drop their ego. And I think many times 
although it's not created equal, many of us can have egos about, you know, whether you're white and say something that was messed up. Some people, you don't know what you don't know. And I think there's often an assumption that you should just know. And I'm like, no, we all grow up differently and you have to unlearn a lot of things. And it's difficult to do that and make a mistake out loud. And so I, uh, or, or in live, uh, in live form. And so I, I just wish, um, and not even just more grace, right? I don't mean necessarily in the Christian way, but if someone wants to take it, that's, that's cool with me. But just more grace and love for people to make mistakes and also be held accountable. Because if there's no love with that, it's just going to create more tension and long-term issues, right? And I'm not saying everyone has to get along and sing kumbaya or anything, but you do have to do everything with love.